Father, as we come into Your Word, we come as people who are needing nourishment, spiritual nourishment. And so we pray that You would provide that for us in Your Word. And Father, there is great use in our journey as Christians in having assurance of our standing with You. But we also understand, Father, that there is great, great danger in having false assurance. And so we pray that You would make our assurance sure this morning as we study Your Word for the glory of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 6. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 6 today as we continue in our parable series, which we do the first Sunday of, uh, of each and every month. Uh, we've been doing it for almost two years, if you can believe that. Uh, as, as long as we've been doing Genesis, we've been doing uh, the parables at the first Sunday of every month. You know, as, as a pastor and, and, and a preacher, sometimes people come up to me or, or they email me and they ask me if there are any sermons that stand out in my mind that I've listened to from, from other preachers that have, uh, you know, stirred me or, or changed me or at least, you know, influenced me deeply. And I, I have to admit that in the age of the internet, when you can get so much stuff uh, at just the, the, the click of a mouse, there are unquestionably just tens of thousands of great sermons to choose from. There are sermons which have impacted me greatly, and if I were to draw up a list, um, I'd, I'd have to include Paul Washer's shocking youth message. If you haven't heard that, you've got to listen to that message. That was a, an absolutely fantastic message. Uh, I'd also have to list the sermon that was preached by Stephen J. Lawson in 2014 at the Ligonier Conference here in Seattle. But if you're going to draw up a list of great sermons, you need to know who the great preachers are. And if we want to know who the great preachers are, we'd better understand that at the top of that list stands one name far above every other name, and that is Jesus Christ. Most people don't look at Jesus as a preacher per se. They might be comfortable looking at him as a teacher. Uh, We see him as a savior, right? We see him as as fully God and fully man, the the hypostatic union. Uh, We see him as the second person of the Trinity. But let us never lose sight of the fact that for three years, Jesus was preaching everywhere he went. He was a preacher, And if Jesus was a preacher, and if Jesus was fully God, and both of those things are affirmative, then we better be sure to put him at the top of the list of any list of great preachers. And if you were to take the sermons that Jesus preached and try to identify the best sermon he ever preached, or at least maybe the most famous sermon he ever preached, it would have to be The best sermon that has ever been preached anywhere. Would you agree? I mean, it would be be hard to deny that if he's fully God and fully man, uh, that the best sermon came from his lips, came from his mouth. And that sermon would be known, would come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, we need to understand some very important things about the Sermon on the Mount, the best sermon ever preached. First of all, like any good sermon, it was an exposition. That is, he was taking the Word of God, he was taking the Scriptures, and he was exposing it. He was opening it up. He was revealing the truths within it to his audience. In the case of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was doing an exposition on the law. And I'm I'm blown away by the fact that there are preachers out there, one in particular that stands out in my mind, who says that there are no examples of anyone doing expository preaching in the Bible. That is absolutely outrageous, and frankly, it's pretty ignorant uh, to make that claim, because that is how Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount. Now, there are really two versions of, of the Sermon on the Mount. There's Matthew's version, which we find in the book of Matthew, chapters 5 to 7. It's very long. If you were to do a study on that, if we, if we were to preach through that, it would take maybe a year. It, it's, it's very long. And then there's Luke's version, 
which is kind of a condensed version. It's found in Luke chapter 6. And what Luke gives us is really kind of a, a Cliff Notes version of it, if you will. And the two have a lot of overlap. They, ha- they have a lot of similarities. And so that, that might seem to put us in a little bit of a dilemma because the texts do have slight differences between them. They quote Jesus as saying the same things, but in different ways. But we need to understand that that doesn't mean that they're not quoting Jesus. It doesn't render their testimony or their, their, uh, their record of what Jesus said as invalid. Because the easiest explanation for the differences in wording is that neither of them records the whole sermon in its entirety. I mean, you'd have to be crazy to think that, that Jesus just preached for 10 minutes here and there. No, the Sermon on the Mount went for hours. I mean, you, you can read it in 10, 15 minutes probably. But he preached for hours. And so neither one of them records the sermon in its entirety. And as any good communicator knows, one of the keys to, to teaching, to, to making something stick, is repetition. Not just saying the same thing over and over, but saying it slightly differently. Saying it not quite the same. Varying the way in which you articulate it. See what I just did? I said the same thing in three different ways. If somebody were to say, he said, saying it not quite the same, and another person were to say, varying the way in which you articulate it, who's right? They both are. But they'd both be quoting different parts of what I was saying. So today we're going to be looking at Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. More specifically, we're going to be looking at the end of the sermon, which we find in Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49. And we're going to see the parable here, the parable of the wise and foolish builders. So I'll I'll read it to you, and we'll compare it uh, to to the end of, a little bit to the end of of Matthew's recording of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, his version of the same parable, and we'll talk about it. And as we do, what we're going to see is that the central and defining point of this parable is that biblical faith is an obedient faith. And an obedient faith serves as the foundation of our assurance on the Christian journey. So let's look at Luke chapter 6, verses 46 to 49, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood rose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Now there is a very, very pervasive, very common teaching in our day and age called easy believism. And the people who teach easy believism, they don't call it that. They, they, what, what they do is they kind of water down the gospel. But in fact, I'm convinced that they mean well and that they only are attempting or desiring to preserve the doctrines of grace. And so they desire to uphold the doctrine that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that much is true. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so these people who teach this easy believism, they desire to uphold the doctrine that anyone and everyone who, who trusts in Christ is guaranteed a place in heaven. But this is where they make their mistake. Well, it's true that everyone who puts legitimate biblical saving faith in Christ is guaranteed a place in heaven. There's really a a small distinction that gets lost between what you would call once saved, always saved, and perseverance of the saints or perseverance of the elect. Let me try to explain. The doctrine of perseverance of the saints, which is what we affirm, uh, affirms that the believer is eternally secure in their salvation. At the heart of this doctrine, however, we have to understand is the fact that the Bible teaches 
that the Holy Spirit preserves, sustains, strengthens, and causes to endure the faith of those who are truly born again. We may have seasons in which our faith weakens and seasons in which our faith strengthens. But in those seasons when our our faith gets weak, our faith may start to waver, we don't walk away from it completely or forever. We can't. Because it's, it's central to who we are as new creations in Christ Jesus. And as new creations in Christ, the Bible is very clear that we will bear fruit. We will bear fruit. Sometimes more. Sometimes less. But God will produce fruit in the person who has put saving faith in Christ. In order that their, their faith will be preserved, will persevere through life. This is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints in a nutshell. The doctrine of once saved, always saved, on the other hand, is is slightly different. There's a slight distinction that we need to make between that and perseverance of the saints. The idea of once saved, always saved, as uh, as it's found in easy believism, affirms that a person who is saved can't lose their salvation, period. And so those who teach easy believism will affirm that a person who professes, anyone who who claims or professes to put their faith in Christ is always saved, whether or not they bear fruit. And so really, what this boils down to, if you just want to reduce this down to the, the most fundamental difference between all of these things. It's a question of the relationship between, between faith and works. You know, you, you've got this, this heretical position, uh, the, the Roman Catholic position, that we're saved by faith and works. And then you've got the Orthodox position, the position that, that, uh, that we have affirmed, the position that the Reformers had, that we're saved by faith alone, yes, uh, apart from works, but that true faith produces works. So we're not saved by works, we're saved for works. And then you've got a view that, like uh, the Roman Catholic heretical view, uh, is dangerous and, and, and very uh, misleading in easy believism. Because what that affirms is that we're saved by faith alone, but that that faith does not necessarily produce works. That is false. That is dangerous. That is heretical. The the Roman Catholic view is false, and so is the idea that biblical faith, that saving faith, never produces, can never produce works. But look at what Jesus says here in verse 45 to set the context for the passage that we're looking at. In verse 45, he says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Out of the goodness of the good heart comes goodness. Not sometimes, not incidentally. It's a statement that implies that it always happens. It necessarily happens. See, the danger of easy believism is that it has created countless, unrepentant, false converts who think that they're saved because at one point in their lives, maybe, maybe years ago, They said some sinner's prayer, or they came forward for an altar call, or they made some type of profession of faith. And thus, they live their lives oblivious to the fact that they are not saved, that they are still dead in their sins, and if they were to die, they would wake up in hell. They're oblivious to the fact that they continue to remain under God's wrath. They're oblivious to the the fact that their assurance of salvation is built on false hope. It's built on something they did. And there is no change. Now there are two purposes for the Sermon on the Mount. One is to exposit or to to expound on the law of Moses. You may remember that the scribes and the Pharisees were very proud of the fact that as far as they could tell, they were able to uphold the law, but only because they didn't understand it. They upheld the law, uh, the, the outward requirements and the demands of the law by their own traditions and by their own understandings and definitions. But what they missed, they missed the heart of the law. 
They missed the heart of the law. And so the first thing that Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is, is showing the heart of the law and showing how badly these Pharisees have missed it. And he's explaining it with authority. The second thing that he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount is making sure that everyone who hears it and everyone who reads it understands that they have fallen short of the law and that they are incapable of keeping it. That's why he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, one of the most famous things he ever said, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Not if, you're, not if your righteousness matches theirs, but it must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Can you imagine the absolute shock of the people who heard that? I mean, Jesus is saying, you know, the scribes and Pharisees are not righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. They are a bunch of hell-bound sinners. And it's not that they had just fallen short of it here and there in their lives. It's not that they had just fallen short of it a few times in their lives. It's that they had fallen short of it every second of every day of their lives. And the same is true of everybody who heard it, who heard him preach this, and the same is true of you and me. And here's Jesus saying, even the best, even the most righteous among you, falls short, isn't good enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, put, your, put yourself in their shoes and try to imagine that. Can, can you imagine, if, if you work in the, in the tech industry, for example, can you imagine going down and applying for a, a tech job and being told that if you want this job, you must be more tech savvy than Bill Gates? Or, or maybe you're, you're trying out for a soccer team and you get told that if you want to make this team, you must be better than Pele. And you, what would you say to yourself? You'd, you'd say, what are you, are you kidding that's, Im that's impossible. It doesn't matter how much I practice, how much I try to learn. It's never going to be enough. And that's exactly, that's exactly what Jesus wanted the people on this hillside to understand about the kingdom of heaven, about their salvation. And that's what he wants us to understand about salvation as well. And notice that Jesus never says, well, they, they come close enough. Some people come close enough. He never says or implies in any way that close enough is good enough. We aren't talking about horseshoes and hand grenades here. We're talking about precision. We're talking about a mark that every single person on the face of the earth who has ever lived, every child of Adam has missed and fallen short of. See, there are so many people who build their lives without even considering the strength or the stability of the things that they build their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations and their values on. And that's just human nature. That, that's fallen human nature. It's, it's not limited to, to this culture. It's not limited to that culture. It's, it's universal. It's absolutely everywhere. And that means that Jesus saw it in His day as well. In fact, He saw it in many of the people who actually had the, the great privilege of following Him around, listening to Him preach, watching Him perform miracles. And, and so He zeroes in on those types of people, as he brings the Sermon on the Mount to its conclusion. These people who would often call out to him, Lord, Lord, but who didn't do what he said. As if his words just kind of went in one ear and, and out the other. They're singled out, as Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I tell you? That's a good question. That's a really good question. It, it's kind of, I don't know, I, I think of the, the way I feel or the way that I want to respond whenever somebody calls me sir. You know, I, I don't know. I've, I've always thought that that title should be reserved for somebody who's, you know, more 
more deserving of it than, than I am for sure, somebody who's held in very high esteem. And so usually my response is something like, did you just call me sir? You know, I work for a living. Um, but Jesus is saying that there is so much hypocrisy in these disobedient types. Is he worthy of the title Lord? Absolutely. He is Lord. But he's pointing out that there's hypocrisy here because these people who are calling him Lord, Lord, which by the way is, is a greater title uh, than, than just calling him Lord. But he's pointing out that these people are honoring him with their lips with this title, but they aren't honoring him with their lives. In fact, their, dis- their disobedience reveals what they really think of him, how they really feel about him. Maybe some of them admired him a lot. Maybe, maybe they, they held him in very high esteem. Maybe they had a lot of respect for him. And we might be tempted to say, well, well that's, that's close enough, isn't it? I mean, they call him Lord. They, they respect him. I mean, they, they, they follow him around. And we might think, isn't that close enough? No, it's still a million miles away from hitting the mark. It is extremely important that we understand that these words were not spoken toward people who professed a hatred of Christ. This is not spoken toward people who even seemed ambivalent, as if they couldn't care less about Christ. These words aren't spoken to people who outwardly rebelled against God and didn't care if anyone saw them breaking the law of Moses. No, these words were spoken to people who outwardly, on the surface, seemed to affirm Christ's teachings. They followed Him around. What a great honor. They listened to Him. They even made professions of faithfulness unto Him. And yet their doctrines don't match their deeds. The things that they believe, or claim to believe, don't match what they do. What they do and what they claim to believe tell entirely different stories about who they are and what they value and what they love. And so Jesus brings this masterpiece of a sermon to an end by telling this parable. Really, there are two stories here. There are two stories contained within this parable that Jesus puts side by side. Two, two pictures, two word pictures that are laid side by side. If you remember those, those old cartoons that you used to find that, you know, they'd be placed side by side and it would, the, the challenge is to, to find the differences between them, right? You know what I'm talking about? Jesus is doing, he's doing something similar to that, only he's doing it with words instead of pictures. And so as we lay these two stories side by side, we see that there are some similarities and that there are some differences. So we're going to start by looking at the similarities. And the similarities start with the fact that both the foolish and the wise are building. Whether you realize it or not, you, you are building. You're building something. Every day, every second of every day, you are building. You're a builder. And it's a reality that not a single one of us can escape. Think about all the decisions that you make on a daily basis. I mean, you you could go with the the menial stuff, like you decide what time you're going to wake up. You decide what you're going to wear. You decide what you're going to eat for breakfast or whether or not to brush your teeth before you you leave the house. You make decisions all the time that are just small, little decisions. But you make big decisions too, every day. You decide on a career. You, You make decisions about getting the type of education that you'll need to get the career that you want to have. You make decisions that pertain to medical care and insurance, your safety and your well-being every day. You make decisions about how much to set aside for retirement. And in every single one of these things, whether they're big decisions or whether they're small decisions, you are making decisions. And in doing so, you are building something. You're building a life for yourself. 
Now, Jesus doesn't say that there are two types of people, people who build and people who don't. No, everybody is a builder. Everybody is building. So that's the first similarity between the two uh, hypothetical builders. The next similarity between the two stories is that both buildings, both types of builders, their buildings are going to face an absolutely catastrophic storm. And we're not talking about, you know, the, the kind of drizzle that you see as you look outside, you know, Seattle drizzle. We're not talking about that kind of rain. Look at what Jesus says. He says, a flood arose and the stream broke against that house. If the stream breaks against the house, guess what? It's, it's not a stream anymore. It's become a raging river. In Matthew's rendition of this parable at the end of Matthew chapter 7, he records Jesus as saying, the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. So we're talking about a very, very strong storm here. If you think a Category 5 storm is, is scary, uh, we're, we're talking about a Category 20 storm. It's a torrential hurricane type of storm that is going to destroy everything in its path that isn't anchored down onto something steadfast and secure. And in each of these stories, this horrible, this, this ferocious storm comes. And ultimately, it's the storm that serves as the ultimate test for how secure the house is. I mean, you don't know how secure or, or insecure a house is until you test it. I lived in a house in North Carolina for a number of years while I was in seminary. And it wasn't until we moved away that we found out that uh, there were some very serious uh, structural problems with the house. And that if, uh, if a major storm would have come, uh, the floor would have given way. And the same is true of our lives. Until a storm comes... You don't know what your foundation really is, how strong it is. And that's one of the reasons that God ordains storms and trials in our lives. Not because He needs to know, but because it produces things in us. It makes us, if nothing else, makes us aware of the faults and the flaws and the defects and the weaknesses in our faith. A couple of years ago, maybe two or three years ago now, we had a very strong storm here that brought this enormous tree branch down right, right over here above this window, pulling, down, uh, pulling, pulling away the gutter from the side of the building, pulling it far enough away that it wasn't able to do its job. And as a result, um, the next day, uh, Garrett and Catherine were doing their Bible study here. They brought their kids downstairs only to find out that it was flooded with gallons and gallons and dozens of gallons of water. I mean, we spent 10 to 15 hours just trying to get water out with this wet back, and it felt like it was just, it was just never going to end. I mean, it was just hours on end. I think when all was said and done, we probably had 80 or, or 100 gallons that we had to bail out from the basement. And so what did we do to make sure that that wouldn't happen again? Well, Garrett got up there and fixed the gutter, and, and he happened to, to have the equipment, and he happened to have the knowledge. He knew how to do that. So he got up there, and he fastened the gutters, are on, uh, fastened the gutters on tighter than they were before. And why did we do that? Because we found out that there was a flaw, that there was a weakness. We found out that, uh, that we needed to make a change, and it was the storm that revealed that. And that's how storms work in our lives as Christians. God ordains them, at least in part, to reveal faults and flaws, things that need to change, things that need to be strengthened. But the point that Jesus wants to make clear by putting these two stories side by side is that storms will come. Every single one of you is a builder. And storms are going to come. And the life that you're building will be tested. And the difference is what establishes, the difference between these two stories is what establishes the distinction between the wise and the fool. So what's the difference between these two stories? The difference is what the houses are built upon. What the builders built upon. We need to understand that until the storm comes, both houses on the surface look good. 
They look perfectly fine. They look perfectly secure to the builders until a storm comes. It is very, very difficult to detect any differences between these two buildings. And likewise, isn't that the way our, our lives work? I mean, everything is fine. Everything is, is going smooth sailing as long as we aren't going through any trials or any hardships or any difficult times. And it's when a storm hits, it's when the, the waves come crashing down on your life, when you face a hardship, that you find out how strong your faith really is or what you're really trusting in and standing on. Maybe you get a, a, a poor health report from your doctor. Or, or maybe the stock market tanks. Or maybe real estate, maybe property values leave you in a hole that you may never be able to climb out of. I mean, it could be almost anything, right? Anything. But the point that Jesus is making is that so many people live their lives the same way that the foolish builder builds his house. Without inspecting or without even considering the strength of the foundation. The foolish builder, he's got a house that looks absolutely magnificent. But he's not building on a sure and steadfast foundation. And likewise, people look like they're doing great in their walk with the Lord. They have a devotional time set aside. They, they get out of bed in time to go to church almost, almost every Sunday. But if, if all the things that you're doing are not built upon the foundation of Christ, it's all foolishness. It's all for nothing once the storm comes. And so maybe the question that we need to be asking is how do you know? How do you know if your life is built on the foundation of Christ? And the answer is, do you do what He says? Do you even desire to do what He says? Do you live a life in which you are striving to be obedient to His commands. I mean, if you study the teachings of all the, the religions that you'll find around the world, you'll find that really they're all making the same promise. They're promising something better after this life if you do this or if you do that. They all promise that if you uphold whatever it is they affirm, whatever it is they teach, there will be some kind of existence after this life with less pain, less hardship, Less suffering. For, for most religions, that, that would be the idea of, of heaven. Uh, for a religion like Hinduism, uh, it would be um, being reincarnated into a higher caste system. You know, the, the caste that you're born into is the one that you're staying at for the rest of your life, and you can't improve it except by, according to them, except by being a really good person and then hoping that in the next life you get born into a higher caste. For Buddhism, it's ultimately. Their promise is ultimately that you'll be freed from pain and suffering in a state of, of nothingness, of, of oblivion, called nirvana. There's a big controversy a couple of years ago now when uh, a Wheaton professor was fired for teaching that Jews and Christians worship the same God. Let me be very clear about this. We don't. We don't worship the same God as Jews. I remember a Muslim man whom I befriended in the year about before I went to seminary. And he told me that he and I worship the same God, the God of Abraham. Really? Do we really now? How would you answer that question or claim? Do Christians and Muslims and Jews all worship the same God? Well, let's, let's do the same thing. Let's lay these things side by side and, and compare them. What do we have in common with Judaism and Islam. Uh, only one thing. We're, we're all monotheistic. We, we all believe, we all affirm that there is only one God. But the differences beyond that, after that, are profound. The ultimate question, if you want to see the differences, is to ask somebody from that religion, how does somebody in, in your religion get to heaven? And a Jew would say, you, you have to uphold the law. 
A Muslim would say you have to uphold the, the five pillars, and even then you, you kind of just hope for the best because Allah's decision is arbitrary. But a Christian, if you ask a Christian, how do you get to heaven according to Christianity? What do we say? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way. There is no other system that gives somebody even a glimmer of hope. The Apostle John confronted the the pluralistic and inclusivistic tendency that that we have when he wrote this in 1 John 2.23. He said, No one who denies the Son has the Father. Do Jews deny the Son? They do. So they don't have the Father. Do Muslims deny the Son? They'll admit that He existed. They'll say He was a great prophet. But do they really acknowledge who He was? No. So do they have the Father? No. They don't. They don't. They cannot worship the Father except through the Son. We don't have the same God as these other religions because they deny Christ. There's a, a tidal wave of God's holy, perfect, and righteous judgment that's going to hit each and every life and it will destroy everything in its path. And Jesus wants us to see before that tidal wave of wrath hits us that there is only one foundation that can withstand the outpouring of God's wrath against sin. And that foundation, the one foundation that can withstand His wrath, is Christ. Christ alone. Everything that's been built on anything else will be cast into hell and conscious torment for the rest of eternity. But the life that is built upon the foundation of Christ will stand. And the thing to look for, the way to know that you are building on Christ as the foundation of your life is obedience. Is obedience. That's that's the factor that you're looking for. But Jesus wants us to go even further than that. He he wants us to understand that we can't have Him. We We can't have Christ without also having His teachings. You know, there are a lot of people out there who, who aren't Christians who would say, you know, I, I believe that Jesus existed. I believe that He was a good teacher. I believe that He was very moral. But Jesus is saying you can't do that. You can't have me without having my teachings. And you can't have His teachings without having Him. So if you claim to love and follow and maybe even worship Jesus, but you don't obey Him, you don't even try, you don't even desire to obey Jesus, you are deceived. But you're not deceiving Him. You might deceive yourself, you might deceive people around you, but you aren't deceiving Him. We don't get to just kind of cherry-pick which teachings of Jesus we like, which ones we don't like. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, why don't you follow some of my commands? Why don't you do a few of the things that I do? Well, the implication there is that it's a, it's a package deal. It, it is all or nothing. Christ and His teachings or nothing. And Jesus wants us to know that if We want a life that will withstand the storm of God's wrath. If if you want a life that will stand for eternity, it must be built on Him and His teachings. And I'm completely aware of the fact that this call to to an existence, to, to a life of humble obedience before God has zero appeal to the flesh. The gospel call is is a call to to a narrow path that is difficult, which only few find. Because the unregenerate man is so deceived 
by the fleeting desires of his heart. And let's just be honest and straightforward about it. The, the gospel calls us to a life that is very costly and that isn't easy. The gospel calls, is a call to a life that is completely different, completely opposed to, to the lives of the people that we're surrounded by on a day-in, day-out basis. Because it's a call to self-denial while everybody around us is pursuing self-fulfillment. Man, it, it's so different. And for those, who, for those who would follow Christ, we understand that Jesus requires that we take up our cross. That, that we crucify and die to the desires of the flesh which are opposed to the ways of God while everybody else around us is trying to fulfill the desires of the flesh. We're putting to death the desires of the flesh. It's an uphill battle the whole way. And if it were not for God's grace, we would never make it to the top. We understand. And if you don't understand, you need to understand that the life that you and I are called to in Christ is a life of trials and hardships. We know that we're secure. We know that we're safe and secure for the coming storm of God's judgment against sinners. But there will be smaller, temporary storms along the journey. We know that there will be trials and temptations that would break us into pieces if it were not for God's Grace, preserving us, sustaining us from grace to glory. But despite the difficulties of the life that the Gospel calls us to, and despite the great cost of following Jesus, there is a great and eternal, everlasting reward which makes it all worth the cost. Paul said this to the Romans, Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. He said, We rejoice in our sufferings. There's no other religion that can say that. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. No other religion can have that true hope. Only the Christian is truly able to rejoice in suffering because we know that God is sovereign. And because He's sovereign, because we understand that He's sovereign, we understand that He has allowed our suffering in order to produce certain qualities in our lives. In order to produce godly character in our lives. God ordains each and every small temporal storm that we face in order to wean us from sin, in order to break us from trusting in earthly things and chasing after earthly things, and to show us the, the steadfastness of His love, the stability of His, His faithfulness, and the strength of Christ as the foundation of our lives. In 1992, Hurricane Andrew came through southern Florida, demolishing everything in its path. At the time, it was one of the biggest storms ever. But in one part of the state that was hit particularly hard, there was one house that remained standing secure, still standing firmly upon its foundation. And so the news went out to, to interview the, the home builder, and they asked him uh, why his house hadn't been destroyed like everyone else's and he said this he said quote i built this house myself i also built it according to the florida state building code when the code called for a two by six roof trusses i used two by six roof trusses i was told that a house built according to code could withstand a hurricane and it did end quote when the ultimate storm of God's holy and righteous judgment against sinners comes. Many will be swept away, including many 
who profess Christ. Many who call Him Lord, Lord. And He says to them, I never knew you. Away from Me. That they profess Him with their lips when the truth is that their hearts are far from Him. Most people don't build on the solid foundation of Christ's words. But if you build according to Christ's building codes, that is, if you live your life striving to be obedient to His commands, you will endure the fiercest of storms and all the smaller storms until that storm comes. Let me leave you with a very important distinction. Obedience to Jesus' words does not protect us from hardships. Obedience to Christ's words, His teachings, does not protect us from hardships. Rather, it's a protection in hardships. Friends, biblical faith is an obedient faith. And an obedient faith serves as the foundation for the entire Christian journey. If you're living your life in perpetual disobedience unto God, as if you can just pick and choose which things you want to obey, as if obedience is just optional but not mandatory, now is the time to realize that you have built your entire life on sinking sand. And now is the time to start building your life on Christ, the solid rock. And I'm not just talking about being a better version of you. I'm not just talking about going out and being kind. I'm not just talking about going out and being very upright and very moral. I am talking about repenting of your sin and yielding your life in obedience unto God. Jesus isn't interested in your curiosity in Him. Jesus isn't interested in you just approving of Him or or respecting Him. He wants you. He wants your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. He wants your obedient devotion. And to that end, He invites you to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to follow Him, And to build your life on Him as the solid foundation. Knowing that without obedience, you have no assurance that you are building, that you are standing on solid ground. Friends, storms will come and storms will go. Whether you're a wise builder or whether you are a foolish builder, the forecast for storms crashing into your life is 100%. Maybe right now you're in a trial. Or maybe you're coming out of a major trial. Or maybe you're going to face some severe trials. Whatever the case, you need to check the foundation before the big one hits. And it's coming. It's coming at every single one of us. But know this. If you've built your life upon the solid rock, the solid foundation of Christ, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear. Fear God and you don't need to fear anything else because the stronger the storm, the more clearly you see and the more confident you become in the strength and the stability and the steadfast love of Christ as the solid foundation of upon which you have built your entire existence. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for this great warning and for reminding us of the importance of self-examination, for reminding us of the importance of, of checking the foundation of our lives. Father, we thank You for Christ whom You sent to rescue us from an existence built on sinking sand. An existence that would just wither 
at the slightest breeze of Your wrath. Thank You for saving us from aspirations. Thank You for saving us from desires and lives that were not built on Christ. Thank You for destroying any and every resistance we had to Your grace and for setting our feet on the rock. Father, we pray as we consider the the words of Your Son, Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray that You would give us a longing for steadfast and growing obedience to Him. And we pray, Lord, that as we regularly examine our lives, that we would see that He truly is the foundation upon which we build our lives in order that we may have confidence in every trial. Not confidence in ourselves, but confidence on the foundation upon which our lives stands. Confidence in Christ. So teach us, Lord, to honor Him in our ways. Give us the strength through the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us to obey. Because on our own, we acknowledge that every single one of us falls short. And were it not for Your grace sustaining us until the end, we would have no chance of being with You in glory. So we thank You that You sustain our faith. Teach us to examine ourselves rightly and regularly in order that our assurance may be right and true and strong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.